Let us call upon the name of our one foundation in prayer. God and our Father, Lord, we thank you so much that you loved us so much that you gave us your word, that you revealed yourself to us, that you gave us all we need to know for saving faith. Holy Spirit, would you point us to Christ today? Would you help us see our Savior more clearly than we ever have? Open our eyes, open our hearts. Lord, we pray for our pastor this morning. We pray that you would bless the work of his hands and his studies as he opens your word today to preach and teach. We pray that he would speak no error, but boldly proclaim your truth. And Lord, that we would hear and receive it. And we pray all these things in the wonderful name of our true one foundation, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles once again to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've been working through this mini-series, if you will, on the duties and qualifications of officers in the Church of Jesus Christ. We started with deacons, and we're working through the last several weeks on elders. We looked at the, the, the calling of an elder, both the inward call and the outward call of elders. We looked at the necessary qualifications, the moral and character qualifications, along with the, the skills and gifts and graces that are necessary. What I want to put before us today is the work of the ministry. So a man has been called to the office of pastor. We see in among the church members, we, we were able to discern that he does have the necessary gifts and graces, that he, that he has the character, the moral character, the mature, spiritual maturity. But so what? To what has he been called to do? What is the work of a pastor? I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were looking at the character qualifications, I, I, I went through an exercise of looking through various um, ministry job postings and things and looking at some of the qualifications that were the bullet points on several lead pastor or senior pastor job postings around the country. And, and some of them were troubling, frankly, the kinds of, of things that the profile of a man that really had nothing to do with what the scriptures require. And so his character, his gifts, must follow from the nature of the work. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we saw that Paul said, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, or probably better, he desires a good work. Well, what is this good work? What is the good work to which he is called? In I'm going to read here in a moment the entire chapter of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read in its entirety. It's, it's only 16 verses. And we're going to look, first of all, at the work's priorities. What is this work? What, what is, what is, according to the Scriptures, what must a pastor prioritize? And secondly, what is the work's testimony? And by that, I mean, what evidence do we have? What witnesses do we have that confirm this is, in fact, the priority of the ministry? And finally and gloriously, what's the work's promise? There's a precious promise 
attached to this, not only for a pastor, but for the church as a whole? What is that promise? So let's read together chapter 4 of First Timothy. He starts with bad news, but thankfully he doesn't end there. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to the teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. At the close of this passage, the very last verse there at 16, verse 16, Paul uses language that's perhaps a little surprising. If we take it at its plain meaning, its face value, Paul says that Timothy's effort, Timothy's work, will save people, save himself and save others. What does Paul mean by that? We'll get there in a moment, but is Paul contradicting himself? Because just six verses earlier, look back at verse 10. He says, God is the Savior of all people. Six verses later, he says, Timothy, if you do this, you will save yourself and others. Is Paul contradicting himself? See, Paul has made, has asserts unambiguously that God is a mighty Savior. And and that theme has been consistent all the way through the letter. In fact, the very first verse, the very first chapter of this letter, Paul begins with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. God is Savior. Christ is our hope. Then later in that same chapter, in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. If Paul believed that, then how could he say that Timothy, by his efforts, by his labors, can save himself and save others? Or in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, 
who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is Paul contradicting himself here? Is there a translation problem? Is there some other dilemma that we need to work through? Paul has made clear, the Bible makes clear, the fact that God is a great Savior. That's, that's, that couldn't be more clear throughout the pages of Scripture. So it's not surprising that Paul now addresses this question. How does God save? That he saves, that he is a mighty, mighty Savior is not in doubt. No dispute about that. But how? By what means does he do this? We find that he actually does, in fact, use means. We know from the whole of Scripture that it is God who saves. We know particularly from the witness of the New Testament that it is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who regenerates a man or a woman or a child, causes them to be born again, breathes new life into him, and seals him for eternity by virtue of the atoning work accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, verse 16 tells us that God uses means uses means for saving of sinners. And the immediately preceding verses that we'll look at now shine light on what things ought Timothy to prioritize if God is a mighty Savior, and if God uses means to accomplish that, what ought Timothy to prioritize in his time and his prayers and his energy so that God will fulfill his design of calling men and women out of darkness and into light and seeing his own people sanctified in the truth. So let's look, first of all, at what Paul says are the, the work's priorities. What are the priorities for the pastor's work? Paul says that he who aspires to the office of overseer desires a good work. What is this good work? What is prioritized here? And Paul presses upon Timothy certain things that he must prioritize. This is not up for debate. It's not up for negotiation. These are things that he must prioritize in his ministry. And not because these are popular. Not because they're expedient. Not because this is the simple path or even the straightest path. It's not because these are things that will naturally appeal to lost people. It's not because these are the things that normally goats like to eat. It's not because these things are recognized in some sort of organizational practice as best practices. It's because these are God-ordained. It's because these are ones that God has said, these are the means that I will use. He says to Timothy, because God is a great Savior and because God uses means throughout his created order, Timothy, you need to submit yourself to God's design and devote yourself to the means that God has appointed to save yourself and your hearers. In other words, in light of all the various activities, of all the various focuses, of all the various priorities about which a pastor could give himself, what does the Bible say he ought to do? That's really the question. Does the public ministry of God's Word have a place of priority above other good, and maybe even important practices. What are these priorities? Well, the text tells us very clearly. And, and notice the words that are used, particularly in verses 11 through 15, or 11 through 16. Notice the, the words, the verbs that Paul uses, devote, immerse, 
practice, keep close watch, persist. And these are all verbs that have a sense of urgency, don't they? Nothing here is passive. Everything is, is, there's a sense of urgency, a sense of immediacy, a sense of activity. But first of all, I want to take us back a couple of chapters to chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul has, has introduced the letter. He has warned Timothy about the false teachers that remain at Ephesus. I mean, Ephesus was a culture just, just immersed in idolatry. There was a great temple in the middle of the city that defined everything about the city of Ephesus. Everyone who was a member of the church in, in Ephesus, where Timothy is ministering, had either been called out of Judaism or had been called out of pagan darkness altogether. And Paul says in chapter 2, he says, first of all, in light of all this, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the very first priority that Paul places before Timothy is to pray. This is a requirement placed upon every member of the body of Christ, every Christian, and much more, much more intensely upon the pastor to pray for those in his care, to pray for the advancement of the kingdom, to pray that God would use these means to accomplish his intended end of calling men out of darkness and into light, of seeing God's people who are born again and now need to be sanctified in the truth and conformed more and more to the image of God, to have that which remains in them perfected and fitted for heaven. But there's a second priority we see here in the text immediately in verses 11 through 16. Verse 12 tells us, Let no one despise you for your youth. Now, Timothy was not a teenager. He was very likely in his late 30s, early 40s, but that was still considered youthful. That's good news to some of us. That's still considered youthful. And he says, don't despise you for your youth. Basically, your, your, your own example, your own testimony, your, your, your inherent worth or your inherent behavior is not what you proclaim. Some may look at you outward and say, well, you're a young man. You don't have the necessary experience to teach us. See, that betrays something, doesn't it? That's still common in our culture. Our, the word epistemology is just simply the study of how do we know what we know? And how does our culture answer that question? By what you experience. By what you feel. What you have seen and done, that's what you know. What is the Bible's epistemology? What does the Bible tell us is the source of all knowledge and understanding? God. And God's revealed word. His written word is the source, the infallible, certain, sufficient source of our knowledge and understanding. So Paul is saying here, you need to set an example for the believers, not because your example is what you preach. In fact, he's, he's, Paul's cutting a line right down the middle. Do you see the line he's cutting? On one hand, don't let them look at your example, you're a young man, for example, and despise what you teach because they say, well, you don't have enough experience. Or 
you can't teach us, you can't teach the women because you're a man. You don't, well, we, you don't know how we think or how we feel or our experience. No, don't, dis- don't, don't despise those things because that's not the source of what you teach. The source of what you teach is God's perfect word. But on the other hand, Timothy, your first priority is to set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. He's not calling Timothy to a state of perfection. There's only one chief shepherd. There's only one man who is perfect and spotless. And that's the one to whom the saints ought to look as the supreme example. But Timothy, are you willing to walk before the people in such a way that they know you? That they can see your life, see the fruit of the gospel in your own, your own life? Not in perfection. In fact, that's confirmed in the, in the second half of verse 15, so that all may see your progress. You know, in order to see progress, you have to have first seen what was lacking, don't you? He's a young man who's inexperienced, both in his doctrine and in his walking with the Lord and leading God's people. So the people of God will naturally see him grow if he's devoted to these things. But the first thing he must do is set an example of godliness. And in this, one, in this passage, this one paragraph, I see two of the most fear-inducing and encouraging passages with respect to pastoral ministry, I think in the whole Bible. And the first one is that one, to set an example for God's people. I don't know any man who would say, oh yeah, I got that. I'm confident in that. Any, any humble man will look at himself in the mirror and say, how dare you even assume you can do that? Point them to Jesus, not to me. Point them to the Lord and not not to a a, a man who's got clay feet like everyone else. And yet, the humbling nature of the Scripture says there is a duty, a first priority, to set an example. And yet, at the same time, here's this, this, this statement that just causes my heart to tremble, and at the same time, I also see the very encouraging statement that they will see your progress. There will be growth. There will be stumbling, there will be errors, there will be offenses against God's people. And yet by his grace, those who labor and devote themselves to these things will grow in grace, will grow in love for the saints. So prayer, first of all, an example of godliness. But look what else he says here. See, Paul has already told Timothy back at the end of chapter 3 that he intends to come to Ephesus and come face to face, but he's writing this letter because Paul's concerned, I may be delayed. And, I, and these things are of such urgent importance that I don't want them to wait if I'm delayed. So I'm writing the letter to you. So Paul says here in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. That's, that's, that's a, with respect to Timothy's public ministry, after prayer, after setting an example, is to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, this is not just to to make it a priority to make sure you put a Scripture reading on the worship guide every week. It's more than that. It's actually to practice this. Do you know there's an art to reading the Scriptures out loud? There's actually a, a, a power in that because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Even the way that we read a text, the way that we emphasize something, the way that we inflect the text, you're interpreting as you read. Timothy, practice this. Immerse yourself in this. This is a skill to be grown and nourished because it's useful for God's people. Now think back in, in that time, 
Almost no one had a private copy of the scriptures. Almost no one did because they were exceedingly expensive. Even some of the Jewish synagogues only had fragments of scrolls. And so for the, for the, for the word of God to be read publicly to God's people, this is very, very important. Timothy, don't neglect this. In fact, practice it. Immerse yourself in that discipline. But not only that, devote yourself to exhortation. Exhortate. What Paul means by this is preaching. Opening up the text, explaining it to the people, giving the understanding of it, and then urging upon them obedience to it. Preaching is necessarily persuasive. It must be. It's not just simply a reading of the scriptures. It's an urging of obedience to it. The public preaching. Paul means, when he says exhortation, that's what he's talking about. Devote yourself, immerse yourself. This is going to take a great deal of skill, and it's a lifetime to develop this. For, For those of you who may aspire to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, know ahead of time. This is the call to devote yourself to the skill. In any other discipline in life, if you were to take up a musical instrument or take up a sport or take up a trade, you have to devote yourself to mastering that craft, to learning the nuances, to learning those those additional skills. There there are rudimentary things that you have to learn. If you're going to learn to play the violin, you've got to learn, first of all, how to hold it, where your hands go, what the notes are on the strings, but that's only the beginning. And you'll spend a lifetime mastering the finer techniques, learning some of the more difficult chords, learning how the, 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 the notes blend together properly, noting, knowing and learning how to play that instrument with others to make a beautiful, harmonious sound. So it takes much practice. And Paul says, devote yourself to this. Then he says, and I mentioned this last time, devote yourself to... Our English translations say to teaching, which is really a problem. I don't mind saying that. It's a problem because it it really veils Paul's true intent. Because when we hear that, we think, devote yourself to the activity of teaching. But that's not what Paul's talking about. For two reasons. One, the word is a noun. It's teaching is a noun, not a verb here. And there is a definite article in the Greek that's omitted from most of the New Testament, the the newer New Testament translations. Devote yourself to the teaching as a noun. So what does he mean? Devote yourself to the content of what you teach. Devote yourself, immerse yourself, practice this, learn sound doctrine. Because remember, Timothy, you've got to be able to teach in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. That takes practice. That takes skill. That takes dedication. It takes, it takes time and energy. Are you willing to labor in those things? So what are these priorities to which Timothy is to devote himself, practice, immerse, keep a close watch, and persist in? It's prayer. His example of godliness, his public reading of Scripture, his preaching, his devotion to sound doctrine. Now, notice something careful, though. When I say priority, don't hear me say exclusivity. Do you hear the difference in those, those two words? Priority does not mean exclusivity. Priority means those, matter, those things of first importance, but it doesn't mean that it's all that Timothy would do or all that uh, a pastor ought to do. If I were to say to you the most important thing that a man can do to love his children is to love his wife, 
and to nourish his marriage. Would you hear me say, well, loving his children, spending time with them isn't important? No. It means one has to come first. One is the building block of the others. So if, if a pastor does not devote himself to these things that Paul says, that the Bible says are of first importance, then those other good things will not be properly nourished. The foundation will not be there for those other good things that he might want to do or might have opportunity to do. These priorities are consistent with what the apostles and the other disciples prioritized. I mean, immediately after the Lord's ascension, there in Acts chapter 2, for example, Luke tells us that all of the disciples, this would have been under the apostolic leadership, devoted themselves to certain things. You remember what they were? The apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship and the prayers. Isn't that very consistent with what Paul's saying here to Timothy? Then in Acts chapter 6, we seen this as, as we were looking at the, the text on deacons. The, the, the apostle said it's not right for us to set aside the ministry of the word and prayer in order that we may serve tables. They placed a priority. It doesn't, they didn't mean that the serving of tables was unimportant. In fact, it was urgent. And they appointed men for that task to oversee that work. But of first importance was what Christ had given to them, the ministry of the word and prayer. So this is very consistent. So for example, we have to ask the question, to, to make this very practical, should a pastor prioritize public worship and preaching above such things as small groups, personal evangelism, men's, women's, youth ministries, counseling, organizational improvements, or other things that may be very good, but I would submit to you, if you, we prioritize these things, then the teaching and preaching will be hindered. And if the teaching and preaching isn't sound, if there is not that firm foundation, then even these other good things will be on a foundation of sand and not rock. You know, the reality is, if I were to poll each one of you in your own households, you would all say, I think I could say confidently here that none of us have unlimited resources in our homes. I, mean, I know for a fact all of us only have 168 hours in a week. All of us have the same strict budget when it comes to time, right? We're all on a fixed income when it comes to time. But even with our financial resources, we can't do everything that we might want to do. There's a lot of even good things that we would love to do that we're not able to do. We have to make decisions. We have to prioritize things, don't we? And so we, think, we say things like, well, I've got I've to keep a roof over our head and keep the lights on and keep everybody fed. That's of first importance, right? If we're not doing that, you know, whether we choose this curriculum or that curriculum for math, doesn't matter a whole lot, does it? Not because that's not important, but because we have to put first things first. Well, in a similar way, God's church, according to the Bible, is a household. We have limited resources, not only financially, but just in terms of time and bandwidth. What do we prioritize? Now, someday, if we have a whole stable full of elders and we're able to, to, to branch out and do a lot of different things, wonderful. That's not where we are today. What do we prioritize? What is of first importance? What, what is it, according to the Scriptures, that cannot, must not be neglected? So here's a question. Am I putting too much weight on this one passage here in 1 Timothy 4 to define the work of the ministry. 
well, or, or, or more particularly, to define the priorities of the work of the ministry? Are there other witnesses for establishing that the public worship of God, the public reading of Scripture, the public teaching, and the public prayers are the undisputed, unambiguous priorities for the work of the ministry? And the answer is yes, there are other witnesses to this. So that's our second point. This is what I'm calling the work's testimony. Now, you know in the Scriptures that and our Lord Jesus repeated this, the law given to the, the Israelites through Moses and Deuteronomy was that any matter must be established on the testimony of two or more witnesses, right? Two or more witnesses. So with respect to, is this really the priority of the, of the work of the ministry? I'm going to give you four witnesses. Not two, but four. The first one is creation and providence. Providence bears witness to this fact. We talked about this some in Sunday school this morning. We have to consider, firstly, the nature of the doctrine of providence. It flows from God's created order. God is the one who governs all things, from the least to the greatest. Our Lord Jesus says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground. I mean, a small, worthless bird, not even that one falls to the ground, apart from the Lord's knowing. We see in the creation account in Genesis that God, God made the seas and the water. He made light. He made plants. He made seeds after their kind and animals after their kinds. And God, with his voice, out of nothing, spoke everything into creation. But did he, did he keep speaking every subsequent generation into existence? No, he established a means. The plants reproduce according to the means that God has given to them. The animals reproduce. Adam and Eve reproduce according to the means that God has given to them. Embedded in the created order itself are means. In order for the farmer to fill his barn with a crop, he has to do more than just pray that God will fill it up. He has to go out and bust up the ground, doesn't he? And plant seed and pray for rain or mechanical agricultural concepts, water that, that crop, water your garden. When you go plant a garden in your own backyard, you're not just simply praying, Lord, will something grow up in there? Well, something will grow, but it won't be what you want to eat. There's a means for that. Our pantries are not magically filled up. God has given us the means of work. Go get a job. Work hard with your hands. That you will have an increase and able to provide for your own family and even out of that overflow be able to help others as well. When we are sick, we pray for healing, certainly, but there are times when we have to have some outside intervention. We go to a doctor, we go to a surgeon, we go, there's a means, and yet we still give God the glory for our healing, don't we? Even embedded in our created order is this idea of means, this idea of God providentially ruling through means. In our confession of faith, the chap chapter 5 is on providence in general, in paragraph 3, we confess this to be true from the scriptures. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet he is free to work without, above, and against them at his good pleasure. But ordinarily, throughout all creation, and even in the spiritual realm, God uses means. So we may look to creation and see God's use of means to establish and govern his world that he has made. So that's witness one, it's 
creation and providence. But secondly, we have an Old Testament pattern. Our second witness to this doctrine, these are the things that ought to be prioritized. Think about this. Moses was given by God a testimony, a covenant to give to his people. How was it given to them? It was preached to them. In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy is either one or a series of sermons given to the people immediately before they went over the Jordan into the promised land. It is the testimony, the covenant that God had already made with his people, and now Moses is sent to preach it to them, to preach it. That was the task of the prophets, wasn't it? You read to the, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, what was their task? To take the old covenant that God had given to them and preach it to the people, to preach to them to repent and return to God, to preach to them to obey the terms of the covenant. It was a written covenant that was then heralded and preached. For example, at Ezekiel 37, this is one of those really vivid passages where Ezekiel, in a vision, sees a valley of dry bones. And, and, the, and the text tells us the bones were very dry, there were very many of them, and they were very dead. And what does God command Ezekiel to do? To preach. Prophesy over the bones. And you know the story, the bones begin to rattle, they begin to move, and it doesn't stop there. The Lord says, keep prophesying. And it was by means of that prophesying. And this, these dead bones represented Israel, apostate Israel, who had forsaken their covenant God and now were dead, spiritually dead. And the remedy to that was to preach to them. And when they began to take on life and the, and the bones and the sinews and the flesh began to reform, now preach to them some more that they may have true life and full life. The old covenant was preached. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 8. You can go and read this, but... In Nehemiah 8, they build a platform. This is after the exile. They're finally returning to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah had led the building of the walls. Now they come to the time of worshiping God publicly. And Nehemiah, Ezra and the other priests stand up and they, they, it says they, they read the word of God and they gave the sense to the people. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight. And they provided understanding of the reading. You know what we call that? Preaching. They preached. Now ask yourself, when you read 1 Timothy 4, in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation and to the teaching. Is Paul inventing something new? Is Paul blazing a new trail? No. He's building upon what has always been God's means. So that's our second witness. The Old Testament bears testimony to this. But there's a third witness. You've probably already figured out. It's the New Testament. The consistent pattern throughout the New Testament is that this, the Old Covenant was a co written covenant that was preached. In the New Covenant, we have a written covenant that is preached. It's proclaimed. Certainly, the New Covenant is built on better promises. It's already infinitely has a better mediator, but the means by which God's people hear and receive and believe and obey the covenant hasn't changed still a public proclamation of the Word of God. And you think about this, when John the Baptist arrived on the scene, the, the, the key feature that marked John the Baptist was he came preaching. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, so it makes sense. He would come preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark records this in, in the first chapter of his gospel in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, 
the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our Lord Jesus arrived on the scene, not doing miracles at first, not healing at first, but preaching. That was his first priority. And then, of course, we see the apostolic example. Peter, James, John, Paul, they all preached. That was their primary task. In fact, in in Paul's epistle to the Romans, the, the greatest theological document ever written, the greatest single letter ever written was the book of Romans. I mean, this was comprehensive. Paul had never been to Rome. He had never met these brothers and sisters face to face. And listen to what Paul said in his introduction. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, if Paul's letter was sufficient, why would he be eager to preach to them? I don't need to preach. I I send everything to you in writing. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Haddon Robinson makes the observation that to the Romans, the book of Romans was so magisterial and so thorough, nevertheless, Paul knew it was no substitute for preaching to them face to face. He says, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Paul knows he cannot preach by a letter. So Robinson comments that a power comes through the word preached that even the inerrant written word cannot replace. There's a power in the word preached that even the inerrant written word is not a substitute for. So it not, should not surprise us that Paul commands Timothy to devote himself to these very means devote himself to these public means of prayer, reading the scriptures and preaching. So we have creation and providence. We have the Old Testament witness. We have the New Testament witness. And then we have a historic affirmation. We know from, from our history that this was the practice of all of the Reformed churches. From the Reformation onward, all of, and I, you can go and read on your own, and if you have Keech's Catechism, questions 95 and 96 deal with this. It is... I've counted no less than five different places in our confession of faith that deals with these particular means. There is a whole series of questions in our catechism that bear witness to this. I'll be happy to share with those, those with you off, offline if you want to, just for the sake of time. I'm not going to go through that, but there is a, a testimony. I've already got three witnesses, so I'm not obligated. The fourth one is, 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 is a bonus, but I'll be happy to provide you that, that bonus. All of the Reformed confessions and catechisms speak to this very same thing. What are the outward and ordinary means which, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? I said I wasn't going to read it, and there I go. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So that's the testimony. That's the witnesses that... that, that give weight to the conclusion that these are, in fact, the priorities of the work of the ministry. Thirdly, let's consider what is the glorious promise? See, this this work is laid out before us, and there are priorities given to us unambiguously in the Scriptures. The Scriptures themselves bear witness in multiple places, from Old Testament to New Testament. Creation itself bears testimony to the fact that, that God uses means to accomplish his ends. And God gives to us a wonderful promise here. 
Paul says in verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now that's going to require some explanation. We have to wrestle with this a little bit. But it's a glorious promise. He says, because God is a great Savior, because God uses means throughout His created order, and this has been the pattern throughout the old, the old covenant as well. Timothy, devote yourself to the means that God has appointed to save yourself and your hearers. Is Paul really saying that Timothy will save himself or that, God, that Timothy will save anyone else? Is that really what Paul's saying? In fact, Paul says that in some measure, Timothy is attributed the salvation of himself and others. And, and that's inescapable from the text unless we want to change the words to mean something else. In fact, some have apologized. Some commentators have apologized for Paul, arguing that what he means by save is merely keep them from danger. You know, there were false teachers. And if you devote yourself, you will preserve them from falling into false teaching. Well, that's true. But that's not really the thrust of what Paul is saying. Paul's actually saying, and he means it, you will save yourself and others. Now, what does he mean? First of all, we need to note the word salvation, Paul uses this term comprehensively. When we often, in evangelicalism, we will hear things like, are you saved? And what we mean, are you justified? Have you been regenerated? Have you been converted? Have you been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light? But the Bible uses that word save much more comprehensively to include not only our justification, but our adoption, our sanctification, and our preservation up to and including our glorification. So it's a much bigger concept. And so Paul's saying, you will save both yourself and your hearers. But second thing we want to understand is that Paul is using the language of agency, the language of means, the language of instrumentality. He's not saying that, Timothy, you yourself all by yourself will save yourself. He's not saying that you, Timothy, by yourself, all by yourself, will save anyone. He's saying you will be an instrument. You will be the means by which, accomplishes, by God, by which God accomplishes what only he can accomplish. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes this really clear, verse 18. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See what Paul says? It is God who saved, and then God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, by which we call others to be reconciled to God. He goes on, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Paul didn't say we were, it's God was. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the urgent appeal every time the word of God is preached. Those who are not yet united to Christ, those who are, who are still in their state of birth at enmity with God, who are by nature enemies of God, here is the invitation to be reconciled to be brought to peace with God who is offended because of your sin. And you have the opportunity 
through Christ to be reconciled. So Paul makes it clear. He's not saying that Timothy is the cause of salvation, but that he is the means, the instrument, the agent of salvation. That's why Paul says this ministry of reconciliation. And we understand this at a human level. Uh, Parents, how often have you been the ministry of reconciliation between two of your children? There's, there's, there's only one Lego set and there's two kids. There's going to be a problem, right? And, and mom has to come in, dad has to come in, and now you have to be the minister of reconciliation here. And you try to bring harmony between two discordant parties. Well, Paul says it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that an infinitely holy party, God himself, is at enmity with his creature who has sinned against him. And here's this ministry of reconciliation. And see, we use this this language of means and instrumentality in other ways, and we don't give it a second thought. We've had the blessing of of several children being being born in the families among us recently. And and, and so we we might use language like, you know, a mother has brought forth life into this world. Do, Do we believe that a mother has actually created that life? No, she's labored, she's strived. She's nurtured, she's cared for, she's protected, and she's given birth. But who's the author of that life? God was. In a similar way, we might say that a farmer grew a great crop. Did the, is the farmer the one in the, in the darkness of the night and the warmth and moisture of the soil that caused a dead seed to bring forth life? No, he didn't do that. But we still use the language of instrumentality because he's the one who planted that seed and watered the ground, and pulled the weeds, and tended to it. And so we give him instrumental credit. We say he's the means. And so we, in our shorthand, we will say the farmer's the one who raised that crop. But if we scratch below the surface of our words, we know that's not what we intend fully to communicate. In a similar way, we don't want on the one side to say, well, Paul's saying something else other than salvation, other than eternal justification and sanctification. On the other hand, we don't want to say that Paul's saying that Timothy is the source. Both of those are opposite errors. We want to say that Timothy, any pastor in his preaching, is the instrument. Listen to how John Calvin puts this. He says, though they ought not to think it strange that Paul ascribes to Timothy the work of saving the church, for certainly all that is gained to God is saved. And it is by the preaching of the gospel that we are gathered together in Christ. And as the unfaithfulness or carelessness of the pastor is ruinous to the church, so the cause of salvation is justly ascribed to his faithfulness and diligence. True, it is God alone that saves. You hear that? It's God alone that saves. And not even the smallest portion of his glory can lawfully ever be bestowed on men. But God parts with no portion of his glory when he employs the agency of men for bestowing salvation. Do you hear the careful distinction? It's not the cause, but an agent. And and we we ought to embrace that because it really is the teaching of the Word of God. It's a precious promise, not only to pastors, but to all Christians. Devote yourselves, immerse yourself, practice these things to the very means, to the instruments that God has provided and commanded for His people to use. And God will be faithful to bring forth the fruit of salvation. Do you want to see your lost children saved? 
Make sure they're under the preaching of the Word of God regularly. Then go home and press into them what you've heard. Ask them questions about what they've heard. Encourage them to take notes. Read the passage ahead of time on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday evening. Prepare that soil. Don't just throw the seed on the dry ground, the dry, hard ground. Go turn the soil over. Prepare it a little bit. Make, make them ready to hear so that even your, your, your two, two, three, four-year-olds, if they've heard you read the passage the night before and they've heard you interacting with those things, things that they hear from the pulpit, their ears will perk up because it's familiar. It won't be some new thing they're hearing. They will say, oh, wait a minute, we talked about this last night at the dinner table. If you want to, if you want to see your own soul sanctified, growing in grace, growing in obedience to Christ, growing in devotion to him. Submit yourself, submit your heart, not just to have your, your posterior oriented in the seat, but to give your heart to the preparation and the due receiving of God's word, not because it's the words of man, but truly is the word of Christ. And believe the promise that he will use these means, not only to see those around you justified, but to see you and your brothers and sisters sanctified in the truth. God will bring forth the fruit of salvation. And he's, God is faithful to call men and women and boys and girls out of darkness and into light. He's faithful to cause us to grow in grace, to grow in love for God and grow in love for our neighbor. Well, the objections are, come pretty quick at this point. And it's not just in our culture in our day, although they are rampant in our day. We live in a very individualistic, anti-authoritarian age. But we're not the first to object to these things. In fact, the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, he has a book called Gospel Worship, and he deals with this objection. And I, and I like the, the, the biblical illustration that he gives because the, the, the example or the objection is, aren't other methods, other priorities, other means just as good? I mean, I heard someone say one time, had a man tell me that, well, if this is true, then anything could be a means of grace. For, the, for Zacchaeus, the tree was a means of grace. Well, that's silly. That was not a means of grace. The tree put him in position to see the Lord and be seen by him. That's, that's certainly correct. But that doesn't mean it's a means of grace. A means of grace would be repeatable and commended by God, commanded by God for all his people in all times. Throughout the history of God's people, men have sought to institute other means, other priorities, other instruments instead of the ones that God has ordained. Listen to Jeremiah Burroughs. He's asked the question, cannot we sit at home and read a sermon? Well, now, it's not hard to repackage that question. This is from the middle of the 16th century. It's not hard to repackage that question for today, is it? Why can't I sit at home and tune into YouTube or sermon audio or my favorite podcast? Or my group of hand-picked friends at Starbucks. Why isn't that means just as good? Listen to Burroughs' answer. He says, but, God has, but has God appointed that, meaning these other means, to be the great ordinance for converting and edifying of souls in the way of eternal life? True. There is some use for it. But the great ordinance is the preaching of the word. Faith comes by hearing, the scriptures say, and never by reading. So that even though when you come to hear, you do not hear that which you did not hear before, 
yet you come to attend upon this ordinance for the conveyance of some spiritual good, that it may be has not been conveyed before or in a further degree that has been conveyed before. Now the quote goes on, but just, just stop there for a moment. He's saying that even when you come, and this is something I've heard before, I'm familiar with this passage. It may be some days you learn something new. It may be that you haven't heard anything new. But maybe there's a truth of God's word that presses in upon you in a way that it hasn't before. Maybe there's a conviction of sin that hasn't come upon you before. Maybe there, there is a, there's a hopefulness, there's a faith-stirring truth that you just, it was there all the time, I just didn't see it. And now, today, you hear it. Burroughs goes on, he said, So, you should come to hear the word with your hearts possessed with that meditation that, is, that it is the word of God and the great ordinance that God has appointed for the conveyance of spiritual good. So I come in obedience to God, and in this I testify my respect to God that I will attend upon this ordinance for his, for the conveyance of spiritual good to me. And although I may think that this or the other means may do the deed as well, yet because God has appointed this, meaning the preaching of the word, to be his ordinance, therefore, in obedience to him, I will attend upon this means rather than upon the other means. Now listen to his biblical example, his illustration. He says, as you know, Naaman thought the other waters would have been just as good as the waters of the Jordan to have healed him from his leprosy. But if God appointed the waters of the Jordan to heal him, rather than the other waters, then he must wash in the Jordan. There is no question that the other waters had as much natural virtue in them. They were all H2O, right? In fact, the Jordan is known for being a muddy river. It's not even that clean. But because the waters of the Jordan were the ordinance that God had appointed to, secure his leprosy, to cure his leprosy with, he must come and wash in those waters rather than any other. So because the preaching of the word is the great ordinance that God has appointed to convey himself by, therefore he requires that you should show your respect to him so far as to attend upon him in that ordinance. Amen. Are other things good? Sure they are. There's, I mean, we, we live in an age where great preaching is at our fingertips. It's on our phones. We can listen to it in the car. We can listen to it in the shower. I mean, we can, we can, we can immerse ourselves. And those are all good things. But is that the means? Is that the instrument by which God has ordained you to grow in grace? No, it is not. So what does priority mean? It doesn't mean exclusivity, but it does mean a matter of first importance. So Paul commands Timothy to make the ministry of the word central in all that he does. Paul is urging Timothy to follow the example of the prophets of the Old Covenant, to follow the example of Moses, to follow the example of the other apostles in the New Covenant, to proclaim the whole counsel of God's Word, to explain to God's people what the Word requires of them, what their duties are towards God, what their duties are to one, to one another, what the hope is that they have in Christ, the promises to which they may cling and be confident in, and especially to urge upon the people of God the duty to believe and to rest in Christ and all of his precious promises. Paul is urging a pattern. He's urging a means. He's urging an instrument that God has always employed and has always commanded of his people under both the Old and New Testaments. This isn't some new thing. 
to, to whatever degree we are devoted to these, to these priorities, we are, one, testifying of our commitment to God because he is the one who's given us this. But we're also testifying to the fact that we see this pattern throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament. So the question before us then is, will you make it so that you regularly hear Christ speak? Is gathering with the saints in the public worship of God, under the the public hearing of God's word, is, is that your priority? And not just on a Sunday morning when you wake up and think, well... Yeah, that seems like the, the best thing we can do with our time today. We ought to go to church. No, in terms of your whole calendar, 52 times a year, is this, is this the regular ordered priority of your life? Does, does, your, does your family calendar, your vacation schedule, your work schedule, does everything revolve around what, what God says is a priority to submit ourselves together to these means? Will you pray? Will you pray for the ministry of the Word of God at GFBC Conroe and also at every other place? Will you lift up your voices privately in your homes, in your family worship? As we gather together, will will you devote yourself to praying for these things? Will you pray for for me as your pastor, but pray for any of those who teach and preach the Word of Christ? To pray, as our brother Kyle prayed just a few moments ago, to to pray, to, to, to preach accurately, faithfully, with the power of the Spirit, so that we can grow in grace together. Will you support the prioritization of this work? And I'm not talking about only financially, that is a a significant part of it, but even more than that, laboring and and assisting and giving your time to helping our deacons to serve in such a way that the ministry of the Word is not hindered by those other good and necessary things, but things that are not given to us as a matter of first importance. Will you pray for and labor in such a way that the ministry of the word is, is supported in every way? Because this is God's appointed means. So the work of the ministry is, is, is first of all the public proclamation of the word of God. As, as we think about whether it's the qualifications of an elder, the calling of an elder, the, the, the gifts and graces necessary, all of these have to be understood in terms of what is the work. What's the priority in that work? And, and this, this sermon, this text, cannot be. If we walk away from this saying, well, this is only for those who, who preach. It's only applicable to them. We've missed something important, haven't we? This is for every child of God. To say, these are, these are important. These are what God has said as a priority, both in the giving and the receiving of it. So will you devote yourself to the public proclamation of the Scriptures accompanied by prayer, the public reading of the Word, by, by the ordinances of, of baptism and Lord's Supper, There are many other good things that may accompany these these priorities. Legitimately, there there are other good things that may accompany those. But if we neglect these first things that are urged upon Timothy, we place ourselves in great peril. We we place our witness as a church in peril. We place our, our growth and sanctification in jeopardy if we neglect these things. So may God give us grace to believe this, to give our, our attention to it, to make these not only a pastoral priority, but a Christian priority. Amen. Let's call upon the Lord now and and ask Him to hide His Word in our heart that we may not sin against Him. Our God and our Father, we are so grateful 
that you've made yourself known to us, that you've given us your word. Lord, we confess that we have all kinds of things that distract our minds, our attention, not only just in, in this, this time, this specific time together, but throughout our week, throughout our lives. We, we, the, the tyranny of the urgent, the necessities of, of providing for our families, the necessities of, of caring for one another, of caring for our children, caring for our homes, all of those, those physical necessities, those things that, about which our Lord says, you, you know that we need them. We confess that we are often anxious about the wrong things. We are anxious about what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will put on, where we will live. And our Lord Jesus certainly and surely said that you know we have need of those things. But to fix our eyes upon the kingdom of God, upon your righteousness, and believe that you will add these other things to us as we need them. Lord, will you renew our, our commitment and devotion as, as your people, as a local church, to, to this work of the ministry? Help me, first of all, as a pastor who is likewise easily distracted and taken off course, confess that I've neglected these things. Would you help me to revive my own heart in these things and that my brothers and sisters, my, my dear friends here in this place will, will likewise seek the grace of repentance, the grace of, of committing ourselves to those things which you have said are of first importance. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. In the name of Christ, our King.